episode of Not Your Average Operator You're with me, Melon McFadden, sitting, uh, we've got our two buddies. We've got one who's on transit. He's, there's sort of good news and bad news, you know. The good news is we've got Pauline back and it's sort of actually not bad news. It's good news because Raph's not here either and we're all really happy about it. <laughs> he's, he's in transit and, uh, you know, we lucked out. We've got the fairer, the, the fairer agenda here with us. So how you doing there, Pauline? You're in transit also. Where are you now? Hey guys, I am in Virginia now, headed to Career Course starting on Tuesday. Awesome, good for you. And uh, how are you, Mike? As you said, I'm doing a lot better. Raf's not here, and uh, I know he's listening to this in transit. You know, uh, he's going to do God's work, but uh, we don't miss you. So take your time. <laughs> hey, uh, I know, I know, Mike. You had some uh, time with your 11 year old nephew the other day. I had my son had a, a big game of rugby on the weekend. Laid some big hits and then stayed over at one of my uh, my old teammates from back in the day. Shout out to the the Taylor family there in South Australia, an old uh, army artillery officer mate that I played many a season of rugby with. And his son and my son have somehow ended up uh, good mates. And uh, my son Michael was there in the lion's den with three little gorillas. Too much testosterone. And uh, he didn't know what was going on. There was a six-year-old charging around with a brick at one stage. I love how Australians <laughs> talk about their kids. You know, it's just like they're in the lion's den with the with the gorillas. It's all animals. You know, it's just like American, like a little American Australian book that you read when your kids. It's all about animals. There's no humans or people. It's all animals. So I really it's like how you're keeping that alive. It's all true. And uh, and Pauline, how how long are you going to be uh, away from the home state of Kansas? I will be here in Virginia for six months. Yeah, right. So it's a short short time, really, but um you know, going to miss the family for sure. Yeah, great. And this course, is this a leadership-based course? It is, yes. Um, this course that I'm in, we will do a lot of, you know, papers on leadership and I'll learn about um, logistics, log stats, and putting together missions. And you have to complete this course before you can hold a company command position. Yeah, awesome. So that's the perfect segue because... The episode topic this week, as you probably see in the show notes, is effective leadership. And so here we are, there's three of us. We're sort of probably the three people in the middle of our career. And we've seen quite a spread, no doubt, of of leaders in our time. And we've seen what's worked and we've seen what hasn't worked. And we've probably tried to select a few points of each. And uh, sometimes you learn just as much from the leaders uh, that you you thought were ineffective. You know, maybe some lessons in how not to do things. So I'm going to kick it off. Um, a few of my points are sort of the, the first one really is to have effective leadership, you have to have integrity. As an effective leader, you must model the behavior that you expect. There's uh, no surer recipe for disaster than a leader who gets up and has hypocrisy because every culture on earth and every age all the way down to little children, they've done some research with like little kids nobody hates things uh, worse than hypocrisy. So if you're expecting your, you know, military uh, subordinates or people in business or in a sporting team or in your family to get behind you and align on a, a goal, 
the very first thing you have to have is integrity. So you've got to be able to be a person who does what you say and that people can rely on. So that whole, you know, your word is your bond is a real key for a leader. Flowing out of that, uh, communication. Communication is my second point. So comms is like a massive area for failure. The whole transmission cycle, so having a thought, encoding it, transmitting it, how the recipient receives it, how they decode it, and then the thought they end up with. There's like continual area in there for interruption. So effective leaders are excellent communicators. They're clear and they often follow uh, uh, models I've seen in uh, my MBA studies, having multiple media channels of transmission. So stuff like having, if you need to get a point across, following channels such, such as like email, having posters, having group briefings or uh, company homepages. Each of the channels that you, you transmit your, your signal on all need to be consistent and that each, each one of them will have a, like you'll get a percentage of the remaining people on board and it's been shown that when you get like five transmission media out, you're going to get somewhere north of 85% of people receiving the message you want. And effective leaders that I've seen will do the old, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and then tell them what you told them. That cycle of rep repeating the key message. And the last step is check for understanding. So at the end of any good presentation I've had from command task force on deployment for et cetera, for example, there'll be a no closed questions at the end. There's always in the check for understanding, it'll be checking RV timings, altitudes, call signs you're operating with. You're actually actively asking questions that the audience have to spit back and it's the pose the question pause for effect and then pounce. So pose, pause, pounce. For example, what time is the RV with the special forces? And then throw it to an individual. So every person in the room has to think of their own answer and then you're hitting it and people are getting a repeat of that information flow. So Melon, so quick question for you, man. So communication and doing that, what do you think is the hardest method and what do you think is the most, I don't want to say easiest, what do you think is the most beneficial method of communication as far as the options are today versus in person, phone call, email, all of that? What, what would you say is the hardest versus the yeah. most beneficial? Yeah, great, great point. So like we need written word. You need uh, st stuff where you can see it in black and white. So you need like orders, emails, all of that sort of stuff but there's no better medium for getting information across than a, than a, a briefing in, in person, a face-to-face. -face. All the studies show that. And so being able to get up in front of a group and get that message clearly across, perhaps with the appropriate uh, audiovisual backup or wh whatever you need to do, mud map on the floor, you know, depending on the complexity of the mission you, you're doing and depending on the available uh, tech support, et cetera. But there's, there's no better media than than the one-to-one -one briefing, but you can, so like you'll see failures, for example, with people commonly will just be forwarding emails and CCing emails and they think that they're communicating and that is absolutely a big fat donut in, uh, in the world that I've, I've come from. So, you know, email follow-up, for example, push after a, a phone call and then leading to, if there's any key information, a face-to-face -face briefing, for, you know, preferably from the man at the top of the, the food chain is always what I've seen. Pauline, what do you think about that? What do you think is the most uh, beneficial versus the uh, the one that causes the most questions? 
I think uh, sending the emails is great because you always have something to reference back to. But I always have more success with that phone call. I mean, I can text and, and I can send an email. And a lot of soldiers today are using newer apps. You know, we're, I'm seeing, you know, WhatsApp as like a first sergeant or a commander group. And that's great as like a reference, but then soldiers are sifting through trying to remember so many things that are happening that sometimes just a phone call, you know, is more personal and it, it, it gets them thinking about, okay, you know, it's easier to remember the phone call than to remember 50 to 100 messages that went through a group that a soldier has had to sift through. Yeah, we use a similar thing at, uh, at my work, Paul, and we've all shifted to signal. I think there's a little bit less... Uh data left out in the world about where the message is going. Uh, we shifted off WhatsApp about 12 months ago. But yeah, so like group, having groups where we're able to cascade uh, commander's intent down from the top. And, and, and I agree that there's a written backup. But any, for me, it's any time that there's key information that needs to be briefed, major changes, a shift in the mission, etc. I really feel that that one-on-one presentation with room for questions in front of a crowd you know, we had one, I've seen one recently where there was a, an auditorium full and there was questions at the end and the, uh, the key decision maker was able to take uh, some questions from some people who were a bit fired up and everyone in the whole room was able to see uh, those stupid questions sort of get shot down. So I've seen that really effectively used. One of the, uh, one of the sayings I picked up very early on with it was that rumors was a, was a rumor is a symptom of comms failure from leadership. So anytime you're having that sort of lateral comm going around people rather than a vertical, you know, people talking to peers and subordinates in a sort of moaning way about orders rather than passing that information back up the chain is a, is a symptom or a sign of a, a comm system that's not functioning really well. So, you know, anytime there's that rumor mill running people over in the chow hall discussing what's going on with a negative spin. Normally I've seen that that has been a, uh, a sign of a network where the comms aren't working well. Have you seen stuff like that in, uh, in your work there, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so get in our community, you know, and, I, and again, I'm not saying that we're special. We're just treated different because of the mission that we're, we're given that uh, we're entrusted that we're going to make the right decisions and sometimes less is more. So we, we like to have a saying called kiss, keep it simple, stupid, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I think going to the communication point is really knowing your audience, knowing your troops. Okay. So how, you know, one, one thing as an instructor, you know, that I've learned is how my guys actually learn, how my peers learn versus, you know, if I was to walk into a classroom and I'm going to talk about assault tactics, to a bunch of pilots, they might look, look at each other and be like, what is he talking about? You know, versus if I take a bunch of my teammates out and I'm like, Hey, we're going to talk about this today. They're going to be like, Oh, right on dude. I got you. And I can speak their language, you know, and all that. I know how they learn. Um, I don't want to speak for everybody, but a lot of special operations guys learn by doing their hands-on dudes like PowerPoint. Like they probably rather go out and, you know, do a 10 mile run or sit in some cold water for a while than sit in front of a PowerPoint for an hour and just go, what are you talking about? Um, so finding out who you're talking to, like really digging into it and be like, how do these people learn 
How are they absorbing this information? The emails, they're, they're terrible. At least in my community, like if you have an email chain with 25 plus people on it, more than likely, I'm not even going to read it. I'm probably going to skip it or delete it. And I'm just like, if it's really that important, call me directly and we will have this conversation about what you need from me and I will tell you your, your answer. I had a really good uh, commander at one point. He instituted a policy for all the, the middle, uh, middle, men, middle level uh, office management of the unit that uh, it was email by exception. It was telephone primary, it was telephone secondary. It was actually face-to-face primary, telephone secondary. Emails were tertiary and he had a set time each day that he would check his emails. And, and that was actually in his signature group on the bottom of his email. His, his, his emails are checked at 7 a.m., 1300 and 1600 and that was it and if you needed him any other time with any more urgent it was always mandatory for a phone call and he also uh he made everyone useful service writing uh performer in in emails and he would send he would send emails back with red pen forcing all the junior officers to write it exactly perfectly and that just it really cut down email traffic in the unit and actually sharpened the whole operation up and really got a a, a whole lot of velocity and flow from the top so i agree 100 percent there so my points there are uh, integrity and communication. How about you, Pauline? What have you seen as uh, effective uh, leadership? Well, first, um, I just want to talk about, you mentioned and talked about communication and keeping it simple. And there is a thing called the Nelson Touch. Um, basically, it was a captain of the ship and he kept everything very simple and was able to do daring things because he could communicate to his subordinates by using that KISS method. I'm glad, I'm glad KISS is, uh, you know, well out there. <laughs> so I, I keep saying that all the time, you know, when I start really hearing in-depth stuff and, and some people just have the gift of gab, especially, and you get into it, I literally have to pause them and be like, Hey, like, keep it simple, dude. Like, you know, when you're out there and you're under stress, you're getting shot at, you have 10 different objectives that you got to do and everything else. It's just like, I'm not thinking of 10 things at once, man. It's just like my primary, my secondary, my tertiary. I know those like the back of my hand and I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Keep it there, you know, and then as it evolves, that's when you need those, those, those pauses, whether you're in the office, whether you're in the field, it's like, take that tactical pause, reassess, and then, hey, put out your intent. Make sure it's clear intent to your people and be like, hey, everything changed. Now this is what we, I need you to focus on. You know, it's just cluttering happens way too, way too easily. And I'll say that really effectively used. Every mission I've ever flown has um, been briefed. Different aircraft types, slightly different format. But every uh, aircraft type or squadron has got a standard flow for the mission brief. And it just it brings velocity and structure and clarity to everyone. So everyone knows what's coming next. If there are people, multiple people with speaking roles, for example, on some of my ISR missions, we had like 20 people on the aircraft and it was the three mission leads that speak. Everyone knew what they were going to cover and it was just done with velocity and you can get a lot of complex information across. Everyone knows the structure that they're going to receive that information in. All right, so I'll throw over to you, Pauline. What are your uh, takeaway points or key uh, keys to effective leadership you've seen? So one thing that we use across the Army and, and really across any military is mission orders. And you talked about that a little bit with briefings for flights. Mission orders across the board have a standard you know, layout. And really, mission orders help with mission command. It helps with 
the, you know, disciplined initiative and it allows, so you're creating an order and you're saying, this is what my intent is for the mission, but it's something that everybody can read and understand because of the standard format. But you also have to keep it simple, stupid and enable people to be able to make adjustments when they're in the middle of the mission, because you didn't pinpoint every single little thing that could happen. You can't plan for everything, but you can plan for kind of the major events that could happen. But if you over plan, your mission is going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need, you need freedom of movement and freedom of action. Once, once you've stepped off, right? Like the opposition has a say, you got weather impacts, there's all the considerations that are going to come up and you, I agree there having that intent. What's the commander's intent overall objective. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to do an airstrike on the bridge and then enemy fighter activity, etc., will divert you, but you know what the primary uh, objective is and you're always able to, everything that comes out, you're going to be able to flow uh, to achieve that. Just to add on to that, um, as an example, and this is not going to be a military example, but it's the same concept. Anybody that plays sports, anybody that watches, you know, rugby or football, you know, the, you see the team coming together and making decisions as the battlefield changes. And that's how teams are winning because they're able to make that decisive action in the heat of the moment and change their plan. Yeah. So, you know, I, I only want to speak for, for my community and, and how we go about training is, you know, we, we get a lot of jobs and over the last 20 years, we've kind of been like the world's police force. Like if there's a problem, they usually throw us at it and it's not what we were really designed for. And there's lots of top level discussion of like, Hey, soft units are not supposed to be used like this. We're, we're kind of supposed to be, you know, there's a crisis and we react and we go and handle it and then we come back. But we've evolved into this force of, you know, we're being kind of the yes machine and there's positives to it because it really shows you how dynamic that you can really be. But at the same time, we're, you know, in my opinion, we're getting kind of away of our core, uh, our core mission sets of doing direct action, special reconnaissance, foreign internal defense, um, you know, just all those basic core things for soft. Um, it's kind of, you know, Hey, this is who we are, but now we have to stop, do a hard reset and be like, how do we evolve or change to make this mission? And that's, that's one of the hardest things to do because now you're talking about all the training and everything you've, you've known just completely gets either shut down or turned around and they have to learn a complete new mission set. An example of this is, you know, I trained 18 months for assault and doing DAs and land warfare and combat operations. And then I ended up getting attached to an embassy for three months where I was working or where I was working money. I basically turned into a special operations accountant working for a, a U.S. embassy to fund another military force that we were training. That was my job. So it was just like, you can kind of like, you know, I, I visioned myself, guys made jokes of it, of course, where I'm sitting in there like a tax accountant and I'm sitting there with my little machine and my little see-through green visor, you know, but it's just like, man, like that's, that was my job. That's what they needed from me in order to win this, this, this battle in the region that we were doing is 
I was a banking accountant for a foreign force, but I understood what their needs, I understood their training, what it was going to take to do that. So I wasn't ready for that at all. That was a very, very hard challenge for me. I really, from the point Pauline made there about the team decision-making, you know, prior to the game or prior to the mission and during the, during the game or during the mission, that was always a real key thing for me when I was in the uh, Australian P3 community. So you've got a crew of 20, you've got three crew leads on them being the aircraft captain and receiving the tasking in as the captain, the worst thing I could do would be come up with a whole game plan. So I've got expertise in my area of the aircraft, but I'm not, I'm not the sensor expert and, and there's a, a, a tactical coordinator as well. So being able to get the, the, key, the key subject matter experts together to come up with a plan rather than dictating a plan to people like on high as if you know all of the detail, but being able to come in and go, this, this is our mission. How do you think we should go about it? Prepare together, and then you present the the brief or the uh, you present the mission brief to the crew as as leads as a team. And during during the mission, you'd occasionally get onto an individual intercom circuit with the three leads, and you'd have that regroup exactly as Pauline said, like the uh, football or rugby team on the pitch, have that regroup. What's happening? Opposition are doing this. We need to flow differently. Let's uh, sort ourselves out. Second half. Yeah, uh, talking about that the other day. You know, I, to break it down real simple, is just because you're in charge doesn't mean you have to be in charge. It, it, simply, you know, exactly what you said. Hey, man, I'm not the subject matter expert. That's what my NCOs are for. That's what, you know, whatever position that you're in, you know, hey, my guy came into this community. What does he have to offer? I, I need to know my people, like on a personal level, on a home life level, you know, if you come in with a college degree in engineering and our mission is to go in and sabotage or blow up a bridge and you know everything there is about bridges because of what you learn, hey man, I want to hear your opinion and what you think I should do. Where should we put these explosives and how we should take this thing out? Because I don't have that, you know, and if you're too hard headed to release your power or your control, that micromanaging want, so, you know, I mean, it's just like, man, use your people. That's your best tool and asset. Hey, just to add to that, um, you know, I came up as enlisted in aviation and completely switched. I went officer and became, you know, logistics officer, went to a maintenance company. You know, I don't know how to change an engine out of a truck or, you know, a lot of the things that these guys work on. So it really, when it comes to making those decisions, you know, I'm making the big picture decisions based on what we need. Hey, fix this truck versus fixing this Hemet. Um, and really it's, so I'm managing what needs to be worked on, but the NCOs and the warrant officers are telling me, you know, this is how we're getting the job done. And I don't even always need to know those details. I just need to know how we're, supporting the mission and I'm telling them what the mission is and they can tell me what they can do to make it happen. It's kind of like just managing expectations. Yeah. I've seen that defined as servant leadership where the lead is providing the mission and then it's like sort of taking themselves out of the way. And you know, you, your keys there as servant leadership is removal of, of obstructions. So meetings r repeatedly with the, the people actually getting the job done like, what do you need from me? What, where, are you, where are your roadblocks? What, what can I assist at from my level to get uh, blockades out of the way? And then what assets do you need me to provide? 
So, you know, what additional stuff do you need to get your job done? Because, you know, we know that it's not the person in the chair with the, the title on the front of it that's actually doing the job. And I've, I've seen this uh, in my MBA. We did a tour of the Silicon Valley and we Google, LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera, the, these world-beating tech companies. And they're really like servant leadership the whole time. They have one-on-one meetings with their direct reports every week. And that's, that's the two things they're looking at. We know where are you getting stuck and what assets do you need? So what obstructions can I remove and what assets can I provide? I reckon that's an awesome one there. All right, Mike, what it, go ahead. Sorry, just to add that, that piece into there is um, I think the most healthy relationship between a leader and their people is, you know, for me, a really, an E9 that I really, really respect. I mean, he's, he's the guy I want to be like. Um, he shared with me when I became part of the senior leadership group, <laughs> don't forget that you work for your people and your people work for you. And I, he's like, I really want you to think about that while over the next few weeks and what that really means. And it, it should go without saying, I think if you have to tell your people that, then you're kind of forcing something that maybe isn't there. But if they were to ask me, Hey, who do you work for? I would say I work for my guys. Like I'm there to ask what they need, how to take care of them, what they need to get this, this job done. And of course I have the big picture stuff. Um, but then at the same time, if they were to ask my guys, Hey man, what is your role? It's just like, my job is to work for Mike and I want to work for Mike, you know, and have that, that mutual understanding, that mutual want, that mutual drive, that we're there for each other. I'm no better. I just have a different responsibility at that time that we're still teammates. Um, I look at my very senior leadership, like we're talking about, you know, commanding officers, uh, like the 05 and up level is when I walk down the hallway, people are like, oh man, the CEO's coming. Like, oh, and people panic. I'm like, I don't panic. He's a teammate just like I am. He wears the same device on his chest as me. You know, I'm not scared of this guy. He's my CEO. I respect him. I will call him sir, but I don't fear him. I'm not jumping out of the way, you know, and he gives me that same respect. I definitely agree with that. Um, A good leader always says to themselves, I used to be in their shoes. And that also kind of helps that leader be patient with those younger, you know, soldiers that are just coming in. And I do have a pretty good example of this. It's not military, but, uh, you know, my daughter, she just turned 16. She's learning how to drive. And I, I believe that my kids and I have built a level of trust. And it doesn't mean that I still, you know, don't get scared when they're learning new things. And so the example is she's learning how to drive. And we were on post and the gate was closed and we had to go through another gate where we were going to have to get on the freeway and it's nighttime. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And Paul has asked me a few times, Hey mom, can I drive? And I've told her no. And she says, well, you don't trust me. And so I had to really like, think about that. Like, Oh man, when you tell your soldiers or your kids, when they're begging for that extra responsibility, when you tell them, no, I don't think you're ready. The reality is you're never really ready until you actually do it. And so I had to tell myself, man, like, how did you learn how to drive Pauline? Like you were 16 once you were, you scared the crap out of somebody once upon a time. And it's the same with our soldiers. You know, when you're 
taking them out to the range. And, you know, these are risky things. They're higher risk activities, the range, having your soldiers drive a big truck that's top heavy and going around those curves that, you know, where they could have a rollover. And then it gets to a point where you're deployed and they actually have to do these things. And, you know, it's not training anymore. It's real. And so you have to trust them. You have to give them that opportunity. They deserve that. And so Paula, here's Paula saying, I said, Paula, do you want to drive on the freeway? You don't have to, you know, and she said, well, do you trust me? And I said, I trust you. And and it doesn't mean I wasn't scared. You know, my heart was pounding. I'm probably leaning on the edge and I'm like extra cautious looking at the road. But she did already prove that she could drive. And I had to remember that, you know, you proved to me that you could do the basics and I can always, you know, I'm right next to you. I can ask you to slow down or whatever, but she did great, you know, and it's because I gave her that opportunity. And, you know, in a couple of years, she'll be in college. She's going to have to drive on her own. So I have to give her the opportunities now. It's still high risk, but it's still a safer environment because I'm next to her and I can make those small minor corrections. Yeah, that's awesome. Like you, you, you got to build them up and then let them go, right? And, and you got you to let people prove themselves. That's awesome. All right, so Mike, what are your uh, what are your key takeaways on effective leadership? So she she really uh, kind of already hit it already. So you know, I'll just kind of revisit real quick. But you know, one thing that I do when I get in a tough situation in a leadership position is I got to take a step back, man. Taking a step back and realizing your position and where you're at, and then I go back to when I was in their shoes. She she hit it on the point when I was brand new into the into the team. What was I thinking of my leadership, my team leaders, you know, my platoon leader, like everything. And it's just like, what did I say about them that I didn't like? You know, man, this guy's arrogant, man, this guy thinks he knows everything. He doesn't listen to me. He, you know, he makes me do this stuff. Does he even know my worth? You know, he knows nothing about me. He doesn't even know my, how to say my, you know, my last name, right. (laughs) You know, all these things. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, if that's what I was thinking in the moment of me coming into this, then they're probably thinking the same thing. So maybe I should take the time to really, really dig down and do something to, to get to know them better and not just cookie cutter of like showing up and be like putting on a fake smile and be like, Hey, I'm your, you know, I'm in charge, man. How are you today? And they're just going to look at you and be like, yeah, you're faking it, dude. Like, I don't even want to talk to you, but really get have to you the- done that? Have you done that? Like, what examples have you used in one? Uh, I mean, I'm an avid hunter and, you know, most of the guys I work with are love shooting guns. So um, in the last couple months, man, like if we're not working, I'm like, hey, instead of coming into work, why don't we just go to the skeet range and all of us can hang out. We'll go shoot some skeet. We can talk about stuff and just just be guys. I take my rank off, you know, and I don't use that anyway, really, for the most most of the part i mean my guys respect me for it but they know me just as mike and i that's how i want to be looked at i'm i'm your voice you know and if i'm not doing a good job of being your guy's voice then you need to let me know and just having a a a cool conversation where it's like there's no rank i'm not your boss we're just shooting skeet let's just talk real stuff and really hear the real stuff going on either with work personal life whatever it might be and all of those really impact a person and their performance you know, so it, I like, that's just one example I like doing, man. Yeah. I reckon informal social uh, hookups are really effective 
with people who are just able to connect and uh, you know build those connections you're going to lean on later when you're under pressure and also really get to know you know across ranks and across experience levels new guys meeting the old guys etc yeah and also i want to see who can shoot and try to out shoot me you know so because <laughs> uh, i don't want people talking shit on their leadership <laughs> <laughs> go ahead pauline just talking about um you know putting yourself on the level of your guys and doing the things that they enjoy what are your thoughts on building a relationship with i i like to say your partner in crime so if you're a, a first sergeant commander partners in crime, a commander and a command sergeant major, how do you think that affects what you're talking about as far as having that good relationship and how it affects, you know, the junior soldiers? So, you know, I'm speaking it from the enlisted side. So I would look at it as, you know, I've been in 14 years. I have a lot of experience versus a new officer that's coming in on his second deployment. He's a platoon commander. And he's only been in maybe six years and yes, he's in charge. And it's that whole thing of like, well, who's really in charge? You know, you see like all these funny memes all the time of like young lieutenants and <laughs> the, the, the E7, the E8 over here. That's just like, I'm in charge. Are you, are you, you know, um, sitting down in a room, taking rank off, coming in and just being, having that humility and just being like, Hey man, look, this is who I am. Who are you? Uh, and just dig deep into conversations like this. What does leadership mean to you? Do you believe in, you know, for us is remediation, we call it. Like if a dude messes up, am I giving him paperwork? Probably not, unless it's really bad. I'm probably going to take him to the training area and make him run O courses till he throws up. You know, like, is that your mentality? No, it's not. Okay, well, where can we meet in the middle? Because this, this is the group that you're getting. I've been in this group. And now you're in charge of it. So I want to help you and you help me, you know? So I think just being able to take your rank off and having a civil, deep down, honest conversation and really don't hold back. That's being a professional. That's being a grown man or woman and doing that instead of letting your pride or your ego get in the way. I've, I've seen really uh, effective examples of that uh, senior leadership getting up in front of people and being able to generate that culture of integrity and that culture of uh, there is no ego in the room. I remember having a, a commanding officer who after a night mission just got up in front of the whole squadron and said just before, uh, you know, the Met brief the whole units in and this is with cadets and staff and it was a, a, a big briefing room full of people. The senior, the senior leader got up and said, last night I made this error and I did this procedure and, I haven't been flying for a while and I incorrectly did a daytime procedure at nighttime and, you know, I skimmed the top of the trees and, and missed a hill only by a few hundred feet with no uh, situational awareness. And before the investigations underway, I just want everyone to know that this is what happened. It happened to me. It can happen to anyone. Make sure you hit your books and uh, familiarize yourself with the mission you're on. And he just, he just sat down and, the, and the, the MEP brief went on and he just immediately generated integrity and immediately generated a culture of uh, it's, okay to publicly fail and let everyone in the unit learn from your mistakes. And like that was a huge example of integrity and that whole getting ego out of the way. Go ahead, Mike. So one of the biggest things I've learned about that is I a hundred percent agree with you being a professional, like by definition, you're a paid person to learn a, a skill set and to be the best at it. 
So admitting when you're wrong and that you don't know something is such a huge part of one is learning, but two is being a leader and showing that like, Hey, I don't have all the answers. The thing that I would say, be cautious of that you need to really, again, take a step back and look at your people and who's in it. I would like to think that everybody under me would have a great professional mindset of listening to a failure and then helping me communicate that into a positive solution. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. I learned that, hey, I, was, I made it a point, I always admitted when I made a mistake in a debrief of, hey, I should have went left instead of right because X, Y, and Z, and that's why I was wrong. Not just say I messed up. Some guys under me would take it as like, oh, okay, I see what he's talking about, and I'm gonna take that on board, and I'm not gonna make the same mistake. That's a, a learning point. Other guys that maybe didn't like my leadership style or they were just, you know, I'd like to call them just a cancer. And if they're not in charge, then they just hate everything because they don't always have the say so or whatever. They take your failure and they're like recording it like, oh, okay, he messed this up. Okay, I'll, I'll keep that. And then when there's an argument or a conversation with other people, it's, well, did you know Mike messed this up? Did you know he went and did this? They don't talk about, oh, he gave great solutions or, hey, he was he stood up and he was always the first one to admit he was wrong. It's kind of a double-edged sword. And I hate yeah. that, but that's definitely a thing. And I had to learn all about that by going through it. I mean, those, those individuals normally I find are operating at a different level of integrity when they're counting up other people's mistakes. Normally, those guys and girls end up you know, tying their own shoelaces and uh, stumbling sometime soon after that. Yeah, for sure. Pauline, you got any points you for, uh, yeah, jump in, Pauline. Do you have anything around there about learning from mistakes and, uh, you know, a bit of humility in front of the subordinates? Yeah, I, I think, so I see definitely how it's a double-edged sword. I did want to kind of focus on one side that we started with, which was, um, Paul, when you mentioned, you know, making a mistake and kind of admitting that, the positive side or the other side of that sword is the soldiers that do want to become something great will know that when they make a mistake that they can approach you. And that's kind of the other side of that sword. So my, my son, he's 12 and he was mowing the lawn a couple days ago and it's a riding lawnmower. He hit one of the trees that we just planted last year. I mean, it's a couple hundred dollar tree, this little ginkgo tree. And immediately he called Jake on the phone and I was in the car with Jake and, and he's crying. It was just heartbreaking. He cries because this tree completely snapped, like it just broke off. And this was an opportunity as a leader or as a father for Jake to either be really just pissed off and think about, man, I spent like all this money and we planted this tree. It's only a year old. But he heard like the concern in our son's voice and he said, you know, we're going to, we're going to fix this. And that's kind of what we ended up doing is we went back home and basically did surgery on this tree and, and it may or may not work, but it definitely was an opportunity to show our son, look, you can make a mistake. And if, if you, it goes back to that communication piece. If you communicate with me the issues then we can see what we can do to keep working forward. Yeah, so good. I've really seen, I saw a, a poster once and it was 
it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't care who gets the credit. And it's that whole, what's the team able to achieve rather than what am I getting for myself? And that, that output is only ever going to be enhanced when the leader's creating a culture where it's okay to, to fess up and let people know about the errors, generating a, a learning environment where everyone in the unit is able to pick up on those lessons that that individual has, has brought out. And that there's, there's not a downside in uh, speaking up because I've seen the opposite as well where there's, there's units where it's, it's seen as definitely flaws if you've made an error and it's, uh, it, it causes suppression of error reporting and that in aviation is a horrendous uh, setup for safety issues. So just with that, just to finish off my last little piece of it, one thing I always like to do, so I, right now I'm an instructor and, you know, I, I brief guys on, on classes and mission, mission planning and everything else. I encourage guys to admit mistakes and also know that it's okay to fail. Allowing your teams to fail is a positive thing because one, they're going to see maybe they're so hard set on one way. And it's like, okay, I'm going to let you go and roll with this. And then you're going to see your failure and why it doesn't work. Some, you can tell somebody until they're blue in the face, but until they actually are doing it and acting it, do they feel it? I'm like, oh, okay. And the light bulb kicks on, especially people that are very hands-on. Um, but if you go, whatever community you go into, okay, that deployment or that workup, whatever you're doing, or even in school or sports teams, more than likely those team leaders and up, are probably doing that position for the first time, more than likely, unless you're a returnee or you messed up and you're like, hey, you're recycling and you're going back through as a platoon commander or something like that. They're going through that position the first time too. So when you're sitting there as a, you know, as a new guy on a sports team or in a military or at a civilian job, just, just take a step back and go, okay, how long have they been doing this job? Do they have all the answers? Are they perfect? No, they're not. Do you know something that you don't talk to them, man? Help them out. Like there's, there's these stories about, you know, General Patton and how great of a general he was. Well, guess what? He was a, he was a, a brand new general at once. And I guarantee you, he made plenty of mistakes and failed multiple times where he probably wasn't so great. And you can look back at the history and it'll tell you, but just keep that perspective that, People are in new positions. They're trying to learn something new just like you are. And don't expect people to be great right off the bat. All right, awesome. So we're going to wind this up because we know you've all got uh, other things to do and we always appreciate your time with us. So some key points here around effective leadership from uh, Mellon was integrity and communication and servant leadership. Pauline and Mellon both uh, had points around mission briefs, mission orders and standard structures. Pauline had uh, keep it simple, stupid. And there was a really great point in there about that team decision-making, that huddle that a football team will go into before a match and, and during the match be able to adapt to what's happening. Mike also, uh, keep it simple, stupid, learning from mistakes, establishing a culture of integrity, and then allowing the teams to fail. Okay, so we'd love to hear what you guys have to say around uh, effective leadership, what you've seen has worked, what you've seen ha hasn't worked. You know what I mean? It could be that, you know, you, you have seen one of those, uh, it's like a motivational poster with a shipwreck on it. And it says down the bottom, maybe your purpose in life is to serve as a warning to others. You might've served under or seen a leader like that. And you might've taken an excellent lesson from that. We'd love to hear that too. So hit us up at uh, 
not your average Mike 77, not your average Paul at gmail.com. And uh, if you sent, if you want something to go through to Pauline, send it to either of us and we'll get it to her. We love a review. Give us uh, honest feedback and we really appreciate uh, all the emails and uh, information that you guys keep sending in. So until next time from Not Your Average Operator, keep your focus and uh, see if you can't uh, get some of this effective leadership out into the world. All the best.